Greetings, and welcome to episode 12 of the Heavy Metal Bebop Podcast, a series of conversations about jazz and metal. I'm your host, Hank Steamer. If you've enjoyed the show in the past, or if you like what you hear on this episode, please consider subscribing to Heavy Metal Bebop and Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating or review there, spreading the word via social media, or even just telling a friend. Any or all of these are hugely appreciated. And in addition to Apple Podcasts, you can also find the show on Spotify, Podbean, and various other services. So if you're talking about the early intersection of jazz, rock, and related styles, Miles Davis is an unavoidable name. And one of the players most directly responsible for helping Miles achieve his early breakthroughs in that area was Jack DeJanette. While he's never left the world of straight-ahead jazz and also remained engaged with the avant-garde, this in-between zone that he explored with Miles in the late 60s and early 70s has remained a constant fascination for DeJanette. From Compost to Gateway and right up to more recent projects like Hudson and his trio with Ravi Coltrane and Matthew Garrison. Jack and his wife Lydia were kind enough to invite me to their home in upstate New York last summer, and Jack and I covered as much of this ground as we could. Incidentally, Matthew Garrison, who's also Jack's godson, was visiting him at the time, so you'll hear Jack addressing Matt briefly near the beginning of the interview. We spoke about Dijonette's time with Miles and Charles Lloyd, his connections to Earth, Wind, and Fire, why he loved the drumming of both Mitch Mitchell and Levon Helm, his collaborations with members of Living Color on his Music for the Fifth World album, and much more. We were up against some time constraints, and Jack and I had discussed a possible follow-up conversation, but obviously COVID-19 has put that and almost everything else on hold. For now, I hope you enjoy this first installment. All right, let's get into it. You'll hear a little bit of Fifth World Anthem from Music for the Fifth World, and after that, my conversation with Jack DeJanet. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Just, just sort of, kind of exploring like the mm-hmm. intersection, mm-hmm. you know, between between you know those those two things, um, you know, over time. Um, I guess you know it's. I think the idea of, I mean, I, I had been, you know, your name, you know, had come up in my mind before of, of, as someone I wanted to speak to about this. But when I was specifically watching that, I was at that Central Park show. Yeah. In um, well, that was in uh, a couple months ago or something like that. Yeah, last month. Uh, yeah, last month. Yeah, and 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 you know definitely. You know, there were moments of that, especially, I think, you know, probably the last tune. I think you were playing the, the Serpentine Fire, I believe. Uh-huh. And then there was also that Two Jimmies track. There were, there were just moments where yeah. it was striking to me how much that music was really touching on kind of like a psychedelic rock. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Flavor. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I guess, you know, just thinking about, you know, you, you 
the, the band had done Alabama and other things like that. But, but, you know, in, during that show, it really kind of hit home just how much of that there was in there. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm just wondering, like, obviously this has been a current that's been in your music for, you know, 50 years or something yeah. like that. But, but I guess I'm wondering like in this band, you know, what, what were things like that a reference point? You know, how, how did that music find its way into this particular trio? Well, it found its way in, 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 um, in the repertoire just organically. A lot of things came up, you know, at sound checks we tried different things. Sometimes we we'd play uh, tell me something good, you know, uh, with, uh what was the name of that group uh that did that? Uh, I, I know the tune, but I'm not sure offhand who 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 that was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's the name of the singer? I, I feel like I'm gonna get it wrong if I say it. It was one <laughs> name, the name of the group. Okay, okay. Is it is it Rufus? Rufus. Okay, Rufus. That was it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. But uh, you know, we jam around that's with with things like that. Oh, we 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 still haven't gotten that together, but you know, I was thinking, Hey Matt, you remember we did that Beatles tune, uh Ublati Ublada on the other side of the beat? Oh yeah. We still have to we should we should finish that off, you know. <laughs> but I remember what we did with it. So anyway, uh, you know the, the stand, you know pop tunes, uh, Hendrix tunes. I mean they kind of come up in sound checks because our sound checks are sort of rehearsals and improvisations and things like that. So <clears throat> if I come up with these pieces or. Or you know, either at the piano or the drums, and we sort of dive in and see what comes up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Serpentine Fire just sort of came up. You know, we sort of became uh, part of our repertoire. Yeah, and it, and it seems like a piece like that really allows you to to like dig into that kind of backbeat feel. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, again, you've you've played with that a lot over the years, but it's really I don't know, it's really cool to hear that in contrast to some of the more, you know, I guess swing feel type mm-hmm. stuff that would be in that in that band yeah um i mean i guess you know th- there's so many you know points in your discography where you've explored that kind of thing but i guess i'm wondering like you know maybe going back you know because you know say like before charles lloyd or something like where where do you remember uh you know rock r&b you know those sorts of things like coming in you know wh- wh- what were your like early experiences either listening to or or, or playing that kind of a well, in Chicago, it was very eclectic. So there was gospel music, and you know, there's uh, Jewish music. There's uh, uh, straight ahead jazz. Uh, you know, doo wops. You know, uh, you know, rock and roll, uh, blues. So all of those, and then you know, you know, with uh, uh, people like Roscoe Misko and. and uh, Muha Richard Abrams, you know, the uh, more uh, experimental music, there was all of that, you know, folk music. So, you know, I was exposed to all of that all the time. Do, do you remember? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Th- thanks for bringing that up. You know, uh, Matthew just reminded me that. Now, Serpentine Fire has a connection 
to Maurice White, who okay. lived in Chicago and came up from Memphis, Tennessee, with some other jazz musicians who I would say they were well-rounded musicians. They played a lot of different genres. And Maurice was uh, very, as well as good to, being a good uh, all-around drummer, was a good session drummer. So he did a lot of sessions and chess records like blues and funk and soul. But he also was a drummer in one of my piano trios in Chicago. So there's that connection. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then when Maurice was playing with the, um, what's his name? Uh, the pianist from uh, Chicago, uh, Ramsey Lewis. Oh, Ramsey Lewis. Okay, okay. So, gotcha. so, so Maurice was playing with Ramsey and uh, featured with him. And you know, he, he was on his way to, to uh, L.A. to form this group, Earth, Wind, and Fire. But he said, yeah, I'm going to L.A. and got this plan and uh you know uh, he had the the producer uh the late great charles stepney who was also from chicago who produced them and next thing i knew you know earth wind and fire came about so mm-hmm. there's this all this back-ended uh connections to earth wind and fire and that particular piece sure Deep sure were you two in touch later as you know as that group progressed? Uh, every now and then, but uh, and I I had more more was more in touch with Fred White, his his brother, who also played drums in Earth Wind and Fire too. So, um, but uh, yeah, we lost. You know, I'd send messages through Fred. Yeah. To Maurice, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, now I know by the time of uh, by the time of like the Charles Lloyd years, you know, you were you were, you know, actually playing the Fillmore, and it was kind of this, you know, playing essentially in front of rock audiences. I guess was there, but but you know, earlier than that, was there a lot of experience, um, you know, playing, you know, in that style or, or, or in front of those kind of crowds? <clears throat> well, a lot of that came in Chicago, like I said before. That yeah. was it. Uh, foundational groundwork that prepared me to play in all the set of situations I played sure. thereafter. Yeah. And uh, you know, the the um in the mid sixties everything started to merge and cross over. FM music radio started up and then programming became more eclectic. And so, you know, you had to Radio stations playing uh, Jazz Joplin, then Miles, or then Jimi Hendrix. So, and, you know, th- things were crossing over. You know, the Beatles were coming around. Uh, there was a group called Free Spirits, which had the Native American sax player, uh, the late, great... Uh, uh, Jim, Jim Pepper. Jim Pepper, yeah. yeah. Chris Swanson. Right. And... Uh, Rock alum, as he goes by that, rock alum, uh, Bob Moses, right, on drums, and Larry Coyle. So, and they were kind of like Charles Lurie group, they were crossing over, you know, merging jazz and rock in a, a different way. And then Hendrix was there, and so it was a very open time there, you know, open for experimentation. Mm-hmm. 
And 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 as a, and as a listener, you were you were kind of soaking all this stuff up. Oh yeah, and then you know you had Indian music, East Indian music, so uh, so that was uh, you know world music before it was called that was was happening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So so was that? I'm not exactly sure of the dates on that Free Spirit band, and, and you know, and how how that lines up with the Lloyd band. But was was that was that like one of the earliest uh, examples of of where you saw that sort of jazz rock thing crossing like well no the other one was sly and the family stone okay and i actually witnessed them at a place called uh, which which later became the electric circus for a short while where electric bands would go play but this was sort of like a audit order not auditorium but a ballroom and uh it's called a balloon farm and we were there and you know, their various bands would come, but Sly's band was unannounced. They were there, and we said, "Oh, who is this?" And all of a sudden, uh, they're warming up and they were playing some straight-ahead jazz, real soft. And then all of a sudden, you hear this organ start to build up, and then you hear saying a simple sound. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, this groove bust out, and everybody's going, "What the?" F- what the hell is this? So they were doing around experimenting, you know, incognito, see what kind of reaction right, the, right, music right, would right. have on it. Yeah. So I got a sneak preview of, of Sly and the Family Stone. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Sly was a DJ too, but his his perspective of music was very broad. You know, So that cross-pollination was, was, was right. very much in the air. And everybody took from the potpourri mm-hmm. of uh, ingredients there, musical ingredients, to uh, bring their own uh, personal, you know, uh, touch to it. So, so you didn't feel at that time any, you know, th- there was nothing, you know, unusual about about sort of crossing those boundaries. Like everyone was sort of listening to everything. To me it was all music. Yeah. Did you like it? You didn't. Right. Right. I try to stay as open as possible. Sure. To everything. Well, I mean, tell me can you can you tell me a little bit about like sort of how the Charles Lloyd band kind of entered into that, you know, kind of Fillmore scene? Like 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 how 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 did it happen that you were, you know, playing for these sort of rock crowds and then how did they receive the band and, and Well the person responsible for that was Bill Graham. Bill Graham had the vision. To, to put together uh, eclectic, uh, you know, uh, act, uh, eclectic uh, bands on his program. And so, so you got all this crossover, you know, you had the Big Brother and the Holden Company, it was Janis Joplin. You had uh, uh, Jefferson Airplane. You had, uh, uh, what's his name? The Electric Flag, you had uh, Butterfield Blues Band, mm-hmm. you had, uh, what's her name? Uh, Country Joe and the Fish, and right. you had uh, Terry Garcia, and uh, what was the band? The Dead. Yeah. Yeah. So we, those bands were all around San Francisco, and we were all on the bill. I was with Charles. I mean, Charles preceded Miles going to the Fillmore. So you know we had 
So I was there twice with two bands. Exactly. Yeah, records. exactly. So yeah. it, it was just seemed normal to me. You know, that uh, I mean, it was great to see because it was everything was open up and audiences were open and not compartmentalized in how they received, you know, uh, all these different types of uh, mixes. Well, yeah, I, I guess it's just interesting that, um, you know, specifically that it was that band, I mean, because there were plenty of, you know, like, for example, uh, you know, it seems to me that Coltrane, for example, his audience was really opening up, but he wasn't necessarily playing in front of rock audiences. Or, or I, I could be wrong, but it seems like it, there was something different happening with the Lloyd Band because of the Fillmore and Bill Graham, it seems like. Yeah, right? well, the, you know, the Lloyd Band was, uh, was uh, you know, visually and musically very accessible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, know, you know, Charles had a look. You know, through the hair, I mean, Keith was pretty, pretty, you know, moving around. So it was a visual, visual band, and it, and it was going for it all the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, just came across, you know, directly to the audience. You know, so you know that music, you know, took us all over the world, took the Soviet Union everywhere. You know, and Charles had a good manager, so you know, it had a, it had this appeal of. Um, you know, merging the jazz sensibility with a more uh, um, pop, but not confined pop approach. Sure, sure. And and do you think that starting to play in that those kind of environments, like like, was that quickly starting to like rub off on the music itself? Was it actually like like influencing the direction of that of that band, or was it more just like Charles' vision was kind of what it was, and it was. Oh, it was a combination of everybody playing. Yeah, you know? I mean, but Charles wrote a lot of the music. Yeah, and it was a collective band in that sense. But he was the leader, so I mean, you know, both things. We were influenced by you know people like Dylan, the band, you know, the Beatles. So all of that, all of that's in there mm-hmm. wrapped up mm-hmm. in that. In terms of like these other groups you were mentioning that you played with, you know, whether that was The Dead or, or Big Brother or any of these, like, did you did you have uh, a lot of interaction with those musicians in in, in the other? Well, band? I mean, you know, we knew each other. We talked. We yeah. speak off stage. Yeah. Grace Slick, and, uh, Jack Cassidy, uh, um, what's her name, Janice. You know, yeah, spoke to Janice. And, uh, you know, everybody was really open at the time. There was possibilities. There was a time of all kinds of possibilities. So it was an exciting time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Musicians were open. Audiences were open. So it was a good time for experimentation. Yeah, I mean, and and, and it seems like, you know, he had, obviously, you know, the, the, the makeup of the band with you and Keith, like it was exactly the right people to be, you know, helping, like, you know, push into that area, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we had you know uh, Cesar Mac B and yeah. then later uh, Ron McClure. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, in in terms of, I guess I'm wondering, like, in terms of the the early, like the early mile stuff, um, because it, it seems like that your drumming was a big bridge for Miles in terms of like moving it out of, mm-hmm. you know, moving it out of you know, what Tony was doing and into like kind of the next, the mm-hmm. next phase of, of, of that. And I, I guess I'm wondering, like, I'm really curious to know, you know, about the early, 
you know, sort of the early period of Miles and like what what he was what he was at. Well, a like what he may have seen in your playing that that you think attracted him to it, and b like what he he was looking for in a drummer and what you were able to 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 sort of. Well, I guess he was looking for somebody who would move with him without whatever he presented musically. You know, in terms of the of um, in a silent way and in, in the bitches brew stuff. Uh, you know, it was basically kind of jamming in the studios and letting the tape run and experimenting with all his favorite favorite musicians on the instruments that uh, he wanted. Uh, and I guess creatively, he wanted somebody who could come up with, uh, would be able to lay the groove down, but also be able to embellish it also. So it's not, it was stiff, but it was flexible and elastic. And so uh, those were some of the things I think he was looking for uh, as far as my drumming was concerned. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To be able to move with the music as, you know, uh, organically as it, you know, as it grew, you know, in the studio and live also. So, uh, and, you know, it was always a challenge, but a fun challenge, mm-hmm. you know, playing, playing that music. And Miles had the ability to, uh, with a trumpet, know how to, where to place the, place the notes, the sound, and get that trumpet, you know, had to, because he had a distinctive voice that stood out and got that music over to people up until the time he died. A lot of times, you know, when when you read about that period, like what, what what you know, what I've read or what I've heard is that you know Miles was, you know, his attention was turning towards things like Sly or you know, you oh know, yeah, like, and and yeah, I I guess I'm wondering like you know what what did what was he talking about with you as like in terms of reference points as uh, in terms of where he wanted to go at that time was it was he pointing to other groups and being like you know let's let's you know put some of that in it or, or how, no, how was he, he never spoke like that I mean he just you know, he liked uh, Buddy Miles, you know, who was playing with Ben Hendricks, and, uh, you know, he sort of said to me, can you lay a groove down like that for me, you know, basically, but with my technique. And so, uh, you know, and he liked Sly, and then I think Betty Davis sort of turned him on to some other groups, uh, there's a guy named Eric Mercury who made a record called uh, with some session musicians called Electric Black Band, which mm-hmm. is a really, really very, very hip album for mm-hmm. the time. And uh, you know, and he was into Hendrix too, so uh, you know his ears were open. But uh, he found a way to do it, you know, with electric piano and guitar, and uh, basically grooves. You know, the music wasn't complicated. You know, it's grooves. The arrangements weren't uh, that slick, but it was just the uh, the players and his, his his trumpet sound and the imprint over those grooves that were at the right place at the right time. You know, just like kind of blue. I went in for a session. Then these were just sessions that we went into. I mean, we knew they were important uh, because it was miles. So. Uh, you know, he wanted to reach a wide audience. That was the other impetus for 
doing what he wanted to do. Yeah. It in terms of these like these pieces you're describing, like these sort of groove oriented pieces, like, and, and I'm sure they were all you know they were all different, but but how how would a piece like that have been constructed? Would it would it would it have been on you to kind of like set up a you know a a, a beat or something, and then people would sort of come in around that, or would would, would not he, necessarily on me. You know, that sometimes you'd have a bass line, mm-hmm. you know, or you'd have a horn play something, you know, sketches, sketches of uh, melodies, something like that. And then, you know, you'd, you'd tell the bass, maybe he'd play this figure and then have me find something to play with it. And then as the tape is rolling it would, and the groove starts to establish itself, and he felt there was the, in the right position to have a soloist over it then he cue somebody in cue somebody up and then it would go on and then then stop it and then um, uh, Tio Macero who was his producer he and Miles they would put put it all together you know sequence it edit it and sequence it 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 sounds like as you're describing it, it sounds like this whole this whole process of 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 you know sort of like working in this rhythmic language that he wanted was very intuitive and natural for you. But it's interesting because like you know you have, I mean you know leading up to that time, like let's say you have you know someone like Elvin Jones or something, mm-hmm. on, and then you have someone like Buddy Miles. Like those two musicians, you know, represented like you know sort of you know different paradigms and you know different musical rhythmic paradigms or something. And it's and, right. and you know you're describing you know very shortly after that, bringing these things together. And obviously, as you can hear on things like Cellar Door or, or, or some of the other things, like you're, you're bringing that stuff together so already so naturally. I guess I'm just wondering, like, was there any kind of uh, process in terms of figuring out how to, how to sort of like uh, bring these, these things together or did it just sort of like come about in playing? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't intellectual. It was organic, Yeah, basically. I mean, like, you talk about the Cellar Door, I mean, like, just an example. I mean, the only thing Miles said about that, uh, or oh, at that time, the band had changed, and Keith Jarrett was now in the band, Gary Barge was in the band, and uh, Michael Henderson was playing bass. So by then, we were moving forward in terms of the Barry Miles thing. You could hear that that influence on that record on the piece called "What I Say," because that beat on that uh, tune that was a beat. That just before we we laid it, we recorded it. Miles just came up to me and said, "Play this, you know, play this rhythm." And that's all he said. I took it and then it ran. You know, we it just developed. You know, and basically that's all a groove with a shout, right? And a and a and a B section. You know, a release. Then that's. You know, that was a great, great piece. And Miles was hitting high notes. He was in good health. And he was, was, I'm glad they released that consecutive nights of that so you can hear that the band develop these pieces. You know, you can hear their organic development night after night. The, the way you're describing that, it kind of sounds like, you know, I, I, I believe like James Brown would also sort of like sing the drum beats to his musicians yeah, too. Yeah. Like like was Miles was Miles doing that often or was that an unusual case that he no, would actually sing? He just did it every now and then. Yeah, Miles was a man of few words, and when he did speak, he had something to say. Right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah. 
So, if, you know, if he didn't say anything, you everything was good. Uh-huh. He liked what you were doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or if you didn't, he'd say, don't play that. Find something else. Yeah. yeah. Were, were there... Um were there other drummers, um, like you, you mentioned, Buddy? Were there other drummers in that vein that you were that you were looking to at that time, and and kind of and you know that, that you that you enjoyed, and maybe were trying to incorporate some of those ideas? Well, I liked uh, Levon Helms drumming. I actually liked uh, I liked uh, uh, the. Excuse me, the Beatles drummer. Oh, Ringo. Huh? R- Ringo. Yeah, I liked yeah. his groove. Yeah. You know, he had a nice groove. Um, who else? Uh, uh, Buddy Miles, I liked him. And uh, who else? Um, Yeah, I like Greg Errico, the slides drummer. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Greg was really. Yeah, I like Mitch Mitchell. Mm. He's an unsung hero. Like Mitch, Mitch, Mitch incorporated. I mean, you talk about Jimi Hendrix's music. I believe Hendrix's music was more jazz than rock, but only because because he improvised a lot, Jimmy. You know, and but Mitch brought in. He brought in Elvin Jones. He brought in all of those influences into Jimmy's music. So he 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 put the. I mean, the other one was Ginger Baker. You know, absolutely, absolutely. But but Mitch, I think, was even more refined than Ginger. Yeah, like you know, I just want to talk to you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want, and he's playing brushes, straight ahead brushes on that. You know, that's jazz. That's a jazz track. Sure, sure. Uh, with a vocal, and so Mitch was playing all of these things, and, and you could hear some Melvin Jones licks even in some of his playing. You know, using the double bass job. Absolutely, yeah. So I think Mitch, you know, doesn't get doesn't get the credit that he should have gotten. You know that, uh, you know, he propelled that. I mean, he propelled that band. I mean, Jimmy was strong and was like a Coltrane, Elvin kind of thing. He. He really needed that drum and bass, not drum and bass, but the drum and the guitar. Absolutely, yeah. Part yeah. to to propel that music, and, and 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 Mitch really did that. You know, you know, he's working his butt off in that band. When you see some of the videos, and he's like wailing away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But anyway, those are some of the, you know, influences that. Uh, that you know, drummers that I, I liked. Sure. Yeah. Now, now, just out of curiosity, did you see both of the Hendrix groups? Did you see the Experience and the Band of Gypsies, or or? Yeah. Well, I mean, I saw them on film. Oh, okay. I never saw them live. Oh, you, so you you did not you didn't see Hendrix? I didn't get a chance. I mean, yeah. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to see that. Yeah. So most of my references are watching them, you know, hearing the records and seeing the sure. videos. Yeah. Did you did you ever? Um, did you ever meet uh, uh, Mitch Mitchell or Buddy Miles? Did you ever get to talk no, shop? No, but with I spoke to Mitch once. He called me once, and just to say, you know, uh, how much he enjoyed my playing. 
and then I, we both had a mutual admiration. I told him how much I enjoyed his place. Yeah, yeah. You know, and he was surprised about that, but I was saying, yeah, man, you know, you take care of business. So he at the time was living out in California, and somehow from other people I heard from that he wasn't able to get past the Hendrix. Right, He didn't get hired or something, so he, I don't know, I think he, after Hendrix, it, 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 his career didn't. Take yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, it's. That. I wonder. I, I don't even. I, I can't even think about like records that he was on that weren't Jimmy's records. I, I haven't dug that deep into it, but yeah, it is. No, interesting. I don't. I don't think he's either by choice or by yeah. people who just didn't think of hiring him. But uh, at any rate, I, I think he's really one of the great uh, uh, multifaceted drummers. Yeah, absolutely. Of the time. Did you have a sense that he was a, that he was a had he come from straight ahead jazz like like was that where he was coming out of? Well, I mean, you know, I, yeah, I think he came. Well, I think he came out of everything, right. blues. Sure. You know, I don't think he was locked into like what you were describing in Chicago. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I think you could hear it in his playing. Yeah, got locked in. He he played what was necessary for that music. Yeah. I mean, I believe he probably made, he made up his drum parts. Yeah. I mean, some of them were arranged by the range. Jimmy's arrangements. Jimmy had a, had an ear for arranging things. So you know, uh, uh, Mitch had a way of coloring the music sure. and setting up the arrangements. Well, one of the other players you mentioned was Levon, who was a personal favorite of mine. Just you know, lo- love his playing. I've heard you speak about it before, but mm-hmm. I guess I'm just wondering if you could, you know kind of talk about, you know, your first exposure to him or, you know, how he came on your radar and what impressed you about his... Well, I heard him in the band. Sure. You know, and then we saw the band a couple of times. Actually, we did a double bill, the band at, uh, out in California, Los Angeles, and Miles's band. And so we actually, before, the, you know, the actual show came in, we jammed a little bit of Robbie Robinson and Keith and Garth and everybody. You you played with him? No, we were just jamming, you know, right. at the at the gig. Sure, sure. Yeah, and so uh, then I met uh, Levon, then and then uh, you know he's a local around here. Right. So uh, you know I uh, I was just impressed with the groove he laid down and his voice, the way he sang. You know, his drumming just reflected the way he sang. Really down to earth and funky, you know, and uplifting at the same time. And so a lot of that, other times when we play things like God Bless the Child with Keith. Jared exactly, trio, yeah, yeah, that, totally. That, you know, Levon, would, would, uh, his spirit would come through in that when we would play those grooves. But uh, he would come to mind, yeah. And I had read that, that, that it, Keith was also a big fan. Is, that, is oh, yeah. that correct? Yeah, well, Keith played drums too. So we both really got, would love to, you know, on certain pieces that would come through. So did you have much uh, interaction with Levon like up here later yeah, when you two were yeah. living and, up here? Yeah, you know, I played it, his, uh, what's it? Midnight Ramble. Midnight Ramble, yeah. yeah. Actually, I sat in with him one night because he used to keep a cocktail set of drums for any drummers that might have come in and sit in. And uh, his daughter was there, and I think, oh, Bruce Hornsby was wow, cool, a guest there. Wow, cool, cool. And the horn section. And so I sat in for a set with, Levon and just double the parts that he played, and uh, 
Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it was one time we actually we we had a ball. So uh, and you know he wrote songs and he played the 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 mandolin. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, he was a well-rounded, you know, musician and very much aware of of all kinds of music. So he, so you got the sense that he was following what you all were doing as much as you were checking the band out or something. Uh, to some degree, yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Man. Those grooves are just sort of tripping uh, with soul, you know. Well, yeah, and then and then you and then you all did uh, you did, all did Cripple Creek on the Hudson album, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. That that groove in particular is like the the drum part of Cripple Creek. Uh, it, it's just it, like you said, it's just got such an amazing feel to yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, Cripple Creek. Yeah, that's good. And uh, what was the other one? Another band tune. Yeah, well, I can't think of it right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but was that your idea to play to to bring that one to to Hudson? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, we did a vocal version of it, but we decided to go with the with the instrumental version mm-hmm. of it. You you sang that? No, I mean, well, I uh, I think I did the last verse or something like that. Okay. Yeah, okay. I did the last verse yeah. w- without the bass and the guitar. Just with the keyboard. Ah, uh, okay. If you know, with the Modesky playing. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so just to kind of like jump back to kind of the the, the timeline we were on. Um, I I wanted to ask you about okay because obviously you know in the early part of your 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 period with Miles, it was Dave Holland, mm-hmm. um, and then that switch to Michael Henderson. It seems like that was a fairly significant, you know. It, it's a different it's a different thing you know it's mm-hmm. it, it, it like I'm, and i guess i'm wondering you know how that shift was for you you know um you know did, did that did that significantly change like the dynamic of the band having someone coming out of like you know stevie wonder's band or something like that no i mean because that's where miles was headed and that's where the music was leaning yeah i mean the, the, i think the best documentation of that particular period with with which was unique, where Chick, where Keith, I mean, uh, Miles had Keith and Chick Corea. Right, 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 right. Is the Electric Miles the Dial of White? Okay, okay. The thirty-five minutes, uh, thirty-five minutes worth of, of, of compositions that uh, with with Ayuto and Dave Holland and Gary Bards and uh, uh, Chick and uh, Marislaw and Dave, and so. There you have a document of uh, this com- combination of players, of Vitch's Brew period, all of that sort of coming together there. Um, so the next step was that Miles uh, wanted to get the grooves more established, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's where Michael came in. You know, because he knew how to lay down a groove really well. So that's where the band went after that. You know, more groove over it in the pocket. Mm-hmm. So that's where it went. You know, and I stayed with that till I got restless and I wanted to do some more experimenting. 
and uh, not be so relied upon to just you know stay in the pocket. So it started. It started to feel like a little more rigid, rigid to you as a, as a yeah, child. a little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was time for me to go. So right, but I enjoyed it. I I wanted to ask about okay, so so at the same you know at the same time that that Miles is moving in these directions, you know, with you on drums, like obviously there's so much else going on with um, either Tony Williams' Lifetime um, or you know I guess I guess it would have been maybe that's slightly later that like Mahavishnu was coming out, but like, do you remember starting to see like, you know, when did, for example, like life, like Tony Williams lifetime come on your radar? Because I know you, you know, the um, trio beyond project later, you, you, you would sort of pay tribute to that. Yeah. I mean, well, that, that happened. Um, that happened after Tony left, you know, so then I joined the band, Miles's band. Uh, my vision came about a year or so later. Yeah. So I guess because, uh, you know, so for whatever reason, you know, uh, um, John decided he wanted to form his own his own band. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and it was kind of an offshoot from Lifetime in a way. But, right. But, uh, uh, but more, more precise. Like Tony's lifetime was more precise, but loose. Yeah, looser. Yeah, more room to jam. It feels like maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but you know, Marvishnus was more precise and very busy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you um? Do you remember seeing? Did, did you see that version of Lifetime with the with oh, the tree? Yeah, I was there with the first when the first gig was up in Harlem. Oh yeah. wow! Okay, so what do yeah. you what do you remember about that? It's fucking great. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Yeah. yeah, it was a really different approach to to the organ, you know, to a trio with the organ. And, and I had to know John uh, in England because right. I jammed right. him. So I actually sent Tony a tape of me playing with John and Dave, and now based on that, he he sent for John. Mm-hmm. So that's how that got together and Larry Yo. So so I, I, yeah, I think I had heard that before. So that that jam was really like what brought those two players onto Miles's radar or was it Miles being in I mean, I mean the band, I guess he heard about the band yeah. or came and heard of my suppose. Right. And he, you know, he liked John, so he wanted to I don't know that he uh, Use John on a couple of sessions. Sure, sure. What we, well, so so what was what was the experience playing that you had playing with John like prior to Miles? Was it just sort of that was it like a Ronnie Scott's thing, like sitting yeah, in yeah. or something yeah, like that? Yeah, jamming every day. Yeah. Oh, and how extensive was that? We did it every day. Yeah, for, like for a period of about a month. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you know, I really you know we just natural and the British music British musicians you know. We were happy to just to go jam, you know, with Dave and uh, Tony Oxley, who played drums. I played piano, John Marshall. So I got a chance to play with a lot of the the uh, up-and-coming uh, British musicians. And, and was the, like, blues and rock sort of making its way into into that? In, into well, that had already been there. Sure. 
course. Cause, yeah. Cause the blues, it, a lot of blues bands, you know, or you know, all of the British musicians were listening to a lot of blues. Right, 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 right. They, yeah. You know, it went over there and it came back. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, so, so that, that early, um, that early lifetime stuff you're talking about, like I, I, the things I've read about that band was that it was just like ex- insanely loud. Like people describe it as like, you know, kind of another level of, you know, what do you, do you have, was it, was it, did it strike I you? I mean, that? it depends on what venue they were playing in. Yeah. <laughs> you played a place like Algonos, which was just like, you know, no place to breathe. Yeah. Of course it's going to run you out of there. Yeah. But they played, when they played at the club, uh, Club Baron, I think it was. You know, it was a more of a spacious club, mm-hmm. and the sound, the sound acoustics absorbed the sound. So they were loud, but it was you know it, it made it fit mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what they were doing. And did you did you also see the early uh, the early Ma Vishnu gigs in New York? I didn't see Ma Vishnu live too much. Uh-huh. I saw him on videos. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What what was your take on 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 what they were doing? Very technical. Yeah. Very technical. Uh, a lot of notes. Yeah. 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 Um. Now. I mean, good good you know good arrangements, very precise arrangements. Yeah. So. Uh, but yeah, that's what I got from it. Sure, sure, sure. Because I'm more controlled in a way. Yeah, it seems like it maybe had more to do with like the... Or 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 the presentation. I think that's what, you know, the presentation of, you know, different different tunes and odd meters. Yep, yep. And the volume level too. That they play like in rock level. Sure. And, you know, it was you know if you hadn't heard anything like that it was mind-blowing yeah 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 Yeah. i mean did it feel that way to you or or? um i just felt you know you know the the, uh i thought the lifetime was looser Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just in terms of it it had more more air yep yep had more air to, to, to you know, I'm saying John's music was bad. I'm just saying it just was different. Of course. You know, uh, yeah. pretty intense, and I just, you know, it was really kind of busy. But that's where everybody was, that's where they were at. Then. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. The music calls for that. Sure, sure, sure. Well, yeah, it's kind of interesting how you're describing, you know, it's almost like everyone all these players they went through the miles thing and then they came out and then they everyone sort of formed their own band and went further into their own personality like sort of post miles it seems like you know with, with you know whether it was tony or uh, mm-hmm. or john or, or you i mean like I, I guess like you know it seems like so much of that early uh the early music that you did um sort of post miles like, like these different bands like sorcery and things like that like it seemed like the 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 rock element was was fairly strong like the, you know a lot of those bands were sort of fairly guitar you know mm-hmm. guitar oriented um i guess i'm just wondering and 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 you know i know compost what is the date of compost like is that around is it 70s so, so that's post that's post miles yeah um and was it was was that band before like sorcery and things like that i'm not i'm not yeah, that was before okay well so tell me a little bit about about that group because i just I, I i don't know that much about you know where you know how that group came about 
it was a cooperative band, you know, with uh, Jack Gregg on the bass and Juma uh, uh, Santos on guitar, yeah. I mean, on uh, Kungas, uh, uh Bob Moses on vibes, I think, and, and drums. So we switched roles. Um, and uh, saxophone player, uh, Harold Vick. Okay, yeah. Harold Vick. Um, and so, you know, we, we used to jam a lot. Decided we really want more to come up with our own brand of, I guess, jazz rock with vocals. And uh, we... Uh, You know, with everybody writing music, you know, and and singing, and uh, you know, it was experimental in the way we approached things, and uh, and it was around the time I think, yeah, it was around the time Yes was hitting. Okay. The band Yes, yes sure. It come out. They had a hit called Roundabout. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so my so as it happens, the uh, my brother-in-law you know, knew the producer of Yes, okay, somewhere. Yeah, and uh, I had sent him some tapes of compost, and then uh, if I remember right, he heard some of the. Uh, uh, I think the engineer or the producer heard some of the tapes, and I guess in, in somehow the Yes manager was interested in in recording it. So what what actually happened was uh, they flew us over to England, and then we recorded. And what what was happening was that uh, Yes was with Atlantic Records, and their contract was coming up, and so. Uh, um, you know they were trying to see if, if uh, Columbia Records was trying to see if they could uh, get the uh, yes. I got sound. you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so the their manager, I forgot his name at the time, Brian Lane, I guess, was going to. Sort of held us up. Okay, maybe maybe we're interested, but if you take this group compost, ah, uh, okay, okay. So, I, <laughs> so long story short, that's how we got a kind of a deal, yeah. got a deal with Columbia Records, yeah. And we got first album, "Take Off Your Body." Mm-hmm. So yeah, what happened was we we didn't have management, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you know, like, so, so our wives. Formed the management, kind of called mismanagement. Mm-hmm, my mm-hmm. wife Lydia and all the members, except for Jumas, uh, sort of represent us with the label. So um, we, we we opened up for Yes, but during that time, bands that couldn't, you know, uh, you had to have a manager and then. You, at the time, because we didn't have management, the, the record company wouldn't 
uh, you know, pay for our expenses. Sure, yeah. sure, sure, yeah. So yeah. we couldn't actually, you know, go out and tour and open up for that. So, um, so we did open up for Yes, and actually did pretty well as an opening act. And uh, then we did one more record called Life is Round. But uh, it was really difficult to, to get off the ground yeah. because of the management. So, you know, I, um, after that, I just decided, well, you know, I wanted to go ahead and, you know, be a band leader. Sure, sure. So it was, you know, it was fun, you know, and, uh, you know, we did some experimenting and writing and, uh, you know, and uh, it had a short life and moved on. So on those records, that's, that's because uh, I know, again, you said it was it's you and Bob, So, but is that, like, on most of those tracks, is it you on the kit drums or him on the kit drums, or is it sort of both? Yeah, it's, it's both. Okay. Yeah, mixture. Gotcha. And Juma's on Kunkas. Gotcha. Actually, Juma played on drums on one, one tune okay. on the second album. Yeah. So it's kind of like a mix and match Mix thing. and match. It's not unlike the band. Sure. You know, with mixing, mixing, you know. Right. Players on different songs. And was that kind of like a Woodstock area centric thing? Like, or, or, or was that not a, necessarily? Not, it wasn't. No. Um, I mean, maybe some of that's in there. You know, yeah, right. On the subconscious level, yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we're just trying to find some different ways to fuse the, the sort of the jazz sensibility. Sure. Into, you know, uh, another direction with uh, <coughs> with music that had grooves, but also was unpredictable, like, like had surprises in it. Right, right. Yeah. What I just just out of curiosity, like, what was the um, you know, what was uh, what was what was it like playing with Yes? Like, what was your take on them? Uh, oh, I love Yes. Yeah. They're great. I mean, they were very organized. Uh, Bill Bruford, I, I knew him really well. But, uh, yeah, their music was not typical. Their music was, you know, had a lot of classical kind of influences, but different odd, odd meters, you could say, it had some jazz influences in it. And, uh, you know, they came up with, with that music wasn't boring. But they're very interesting. My favorite record of theirs, aside from it, has uh, um, the roundabout is nine oh one five. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, produced by Trevor Trevor Horn. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, you know, and uh, just I mean, it's really tight. It's really precise. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, vocal acapella. John Anderson is really amazing voice. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, they they are meticulous in their approach to uh, to the presentation of uh, pop, or more expansive pop. Music, sure, I should say that. Sure. Yeah. So, so you did you keep up with Bill uh, over the years? Uh, you know, I passed with Cross from you know some time to time. Sure. Tour. Yeah, because obviously he's another one of these musicians who's who's you know kind of just moved very freely between. You know, kind of the yeah. jazz and the rock worlds. Yeah. Um, 
uh, was that was that kind of other things like that in that area, like things like King Crimson or other bands like that? Were were they, were they on your your radar? Were you checking any of that stuff out? Or? Sometimes, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. What about what about Zeppelin? Uh, I wasn't into Led Zeppelin that much. Yeah, I, mean, I you know probably should listen a little more. But, yeah, uh, yeah, I wasn't you know I wasn't high on my radar at the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, coming out of the coming out of the composting, you said you you know that that you know you you wanted to head into like the the band leading, and there were kind of like a series of projects. Like there was you know the kind of directions albums. There was the Cosmic Chicken. Just like there's a just you know a lot of different kind of groups Mm -hmm. happening, and there are a lot of them involving Abercrombie. Yeah, Um, yeah, Abercrombie was was great, man. He's just phenomenal musician. And where was? When did you two first cross paths? Well, uh, <clears throat> you know, mid sixties. I, I had a group with him and uh, Mick Goodrick together. Actually, was that the Sorcery? Well, not the Sorcery, but we had a band. It was, it was a group with Clinton Houston on bass. Okay, so um, it was playing. Here and there in New Jersey when I lived in Lambertville, New Jersey. But um, then when I formed uh, your directions, um, you know, John and I just had an immediate rapport, you know. Also Mick, too, which later came my special edition bands. Right, 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 right. But, uh, you know, John just immediately, you know, he had a sense of humor. He could play anything go any direction and we just had an organic flow uh, that you know you could I could trust you know trying anything with John and see what we came up with and he also was a, you know a wonderful composer and a beautiful human being you know mm. yeah wonderful guy yeah I mean it seems like like um, you know with something like like the first gateway, like it's that, 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 that idea is so fully realized that, you know, the, the two of you can kind of go, go in any direction you want. And it all just sort of feels like, mm-hmm. you know, it just, it just sounds comfortable, you know, like, was that in terms of that, you know, moving out of those projects and like into gateway, like what was the, what was like the driving force behind gateway? Like what was the, actually the gateway was an idea of Manfred's really. Oh, okay. And just, we put us together and, uh, and we, you know, it stuck. I mean, we, we really liked it. And, you know, we made a few albums, uh, did a lot some touring, and it was always fun. It's a challenge, you know, because all three of us challenged each other, you know, and uh, so you know, and in compositional wise, we, uh, you know, there's a lot of diversity from each each of us as composers. Sure, sure. So, but it, it just, it, it had a sound, you know, our individual qualities merged together to create a gateway sound. Mm, gateway mm. had a sound presence, you know. And people still, it's, you know, it's one of my favorite trios. Yeah. Well, it's a different, it's a different, you know, all these other kind of takes on whatever this realm is. I mean, people say fusion or whatever, but, you know, all these different bands, you know, whether it was the Miles Band or, or, or uh, Lifetime or My Vision or anything like Gateway mm-hmm. is right in there. It's 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 another take on that whole thing, but it doesn't sound like any of those other groups, right? You know, like exactly, yeah. Like mm-hmm. like what 
what was it, you know, what, why, why do you think, you know, you, you talked about like that signature sound of gateway, like where, you know, were there common reference points where there were, oh yeah, between, constantly. Yeah. Yeah. But you hear them in the music. Sure. You know, you're going to say it's one thing. You hear Hendrix, you hear a whole bunch of things. Yeah. There. And plus you have the added aspect of color change from me playing the piano. Right. Exactly. So exactly. there's another dimension to the sound of the group. Yeah. 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 You know? And John playing piccolo guitar. So, uh, uh, so you had a lot of you know room for you know again it was another one of those groups that was was precise but also very organic and had a lot of space in the music Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and dynamics too. Yeah, I was going to say that like it's one of those bands that when it's when it's beautiful, it's very. You know, when it's beautiful, it's very beautiful and kind of serene. But then it really goes to some. It gets very, you know, yeah. intense. Like you know mm-hmm. that that like there's that piece sorcery that you did yeah. for Gateway that you also did on one of your own records. Like like do you? I mean, it's it's got this mm-hmm. very like dark, almost like you know, to me it almost has like kind of like a almost heavy metal kind of like yeah. you know sense about it. Like you know, do you remember yeah. what might have inspired something like that? What's that? Uh, that sorcery piece, uh, sorcery one, I think it's called. That's on Gateway, and it's also on. Um, I think it's also on Cos- Cosmic Chicken, or, or or maybe maybe it's Directions. I'm not yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, just I don't know. It just came to me. Yeah, yeah. the piece. Mm-hmm. Just, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it just came to me. Uh, yeah, it was dark, but uh, there was something mysterious about it. I liked mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. something different that I normally didn't write. Mm-hmm. And so. Uh, yeah, I, you know, it was it was it was fun to play, you know. Yeah, and then something like that, obviously, that like Backwoods song or something, just has such a like you know, it's kind of just this like hypnotic groove to it, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, well, that that piece was open to a lot of interpretations. Yeah, different kinds of interpretations with it. So uh, I, I like that melody, you know. It's so simple. I mean, you could relate that back to you know Levon or the band. Sure. Sure. So that you know has that in it too. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean that that kind of you know whatever that kind of music is, there's not really any good word for it. It's kind of like this mix of all these things. You know, there's jazz and there's rock, maybe even some like R and B, country, something like that. Like a lot of that, you can hear that same kind of feel on the Hudson album, like in the kind of jams that you're doing. And mm-hmm. that you know, I, I feel like it's, I hear like a a connection between oh yeah gateway Definitely all that all that ties together yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and like as i don't even know what to call it other than just like you know what it sounds like when you're playing backbeat type of music mm-hmm. I, I just think of it as like you know one strain of jack dejanet music or something like that <laughs> yeah yeah um, yeah yeah i know what you mean yeah yeah um but yeah i mean you know obviously you know gateway you know that 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 band would sort of continue, but there's so much there's so many other there's so many other different um, you know collaborations to, to touch yeah. on here. I guess like you know one thing. I mean, this is sort of like jumping ahead in time, but I actually you know one of those people I had spoken uh, to for this for this podcast was Vernon Reed, um, and I know that you had done that record uh, music from the Fifth World with right. with him and uh, and yeah. Will from Living Color. I guess I'm, I, I'd love to know like about you know where. Uh, how that collab- collaboration came about, you know, how Living Color came on your radar or just like how, how that whole thing sort of came together and what the album was like. Yeah, for you. I mean, you know, I, uh, 
you know, my daughters, both my daughters, uh, turn I think turn us on to them. And um, when I went to hear them immediately, well, I knew who Vernon was, you know, and uh, they were music, you know, musicians who were singing songs about relevant issues. Sure. Social, economical, political issues. But they had a presentation, you know, that was comparable to the so well, you know, rock bands and everything. Well, they, you know, they call it the Black Coalition, rock, Black Rock sure, Coalition. Sure, sure, yeah. Uh, the people like, you know, that, and I later discovered that they were inspired by a group called Fishbone. Sure. You know. Um, and Bad Brains, both those groups. So, uh, you know, and, and I, I think that... Uh, you know, I think Jimmy was really even laid the foundation for that. Sure, Jimmy and Buddy Guy, because Jimmy comes out of Buddy Guy. Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, when I we went to hear them, I mean, they were really the arrangements were really tight, and and Corey who sings the lead. Uh, and uh, Moz, who was there at the time, at the, the original group, uh, it just came together. It's just so so great. And then when I heard them, you know, I liked, I really liked what Will did, how he set the music up, propelled the band. Yeah. And uh, I liked liked the tunes. You know, I liked what they wrote. And uh, you know, I saw them live quite a few times. And, around uh, the time of that first record huh around the time of their yeah yeah right yeah and uh yeah i mean and they're still going you know yeah they're still yeah. going so uh and then you know, will subsequently plays up uh, you know he's not just locked into rock you know he's sure. a well-rounded musician plays bass composes arranges yeah. produces all of those guys, yeah. And Vernon, Vernon is this amazing. He got amazing mind and very artistic, beautiful guy. So, uh, yeah, I, I was influenced by the, you know, by that music, by that group, you know, just in terms of just the songs in my head and the grooves that Will came up with, the beats that he came up with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what what was the what was it like to uh, what was it like to jam with him? Because some of that stuff on that music from the Fifth World, like it, it gets pretty you know free, gets really intense. You know some of those tracks. Well, you know the the the, the concept for that came from uh, uh, source you know, Native American. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Woman, woman um, from the. Uh, uh, was it the uh, Wolf Clan, mm-hmm. uh, Grandma Twyla Nietzsche, mm-hmm. uh, the Cataraugus, uh Reservation up near, uh, up near Buffalo, or yeah, yeah, that's where Buffalo or Niagara Falls, mm-hmm. Buffalo, mm-hmm. yeah, and so. Um, you know, our family was initiated into the Wolf Clan. You know, and, and my my wife Lydia 
you know, was sort of guided to, you know, uh, bring us, you know, to the Indians or Native Americans. Sure. And so, you know, we went, well, we went to, well, actually, it was very interesting. We had gone one weekend to a, to a gathering, Native American gathering, a guy named Sunbear. Anyway, we went there and then we stayed overnight at the place um, near a lake. And then we were sitting, uh, you know, on the, you know, by the lake, looking up at the sky. And this amazing formation of cloud of a wolf smiling at us mm. with a feather down. And we both looked at it and we thought, did you see that? <laughs> and and then it just it's like, you know, she got a message, you know, take Jack to the Indians. Sure, but, sure. But it was, you know, for her as well, you know. Yeah. You know, so she um, was drawn to to the teachings. And so we went up to uh, uh, a three-day powwow for the elders from elders from around the world mm. a peace a peace elders conference right so we went up there stayed for three days and uh our whole family went and uh she she was amazing she had these teachers and she uh uh said we were a whole family of wolves and we got the native american names and she had these teachings and she talked about uh, uh, other council fires were here before. So it was about the stone people uh, and a stone person called Giok. It talked about the, you know, the uh, the different uh, events where the you know uh, fire, you know, the earth, different uh, death and rebirth mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. Uh, of the planet. And uh, so she kept saying that, uh, you know, there was the end of the fourth world, which was greed and separation right, and moving right. into the fifth world. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Rock was talking about that into uh, uh, you know, peace and integration. So uh, and she had... You know, I got inspired by that, and then I said, and she liked the, she was a drummer, so she liked odd meters. Ah, and okay. She liked to play drums, the drums and odd meters, and uh, uh, she was actually a drummer. She was a jazz drummer too. Uh, so, um, I was inspired by that to write this music and tribute to her and to this concept of the fifth world uh, which we still need you know in these times change so uh, it came to mind I wanted to pay tribute to the Native American uh, sensibility and also to to Hendrix you know and the rock phenomenon sure and also uh, the Aboriginal 
no, no, the Aboriginal peoples. And so um, I had, uh, I also wanted to have vocals on it as well. So the idea of having two drummers, two guitar players, two guitars and uh, pianos with Michael Caine and the keyboards, Lonnie Plaxico. And then Will, Will and myself, my oldest daughter, Farah, was singing on it. Will's sister was on it. And another cousin uh, was on it, uh, Rogerio. Uh, who else? Uh, well, yeah. um, a woman named Joan Henry, mm-hmm. who helped organize and uh, come up with arrangements for the vocal chants on it. So yeah, it was uh, it was not a band that was set up for touring, but it was a, it was a project, sure, a recording sure, project, sure, sure. yeah, which I was able to be able to have uh, have the financial backing from a producer, a Japanese producer for EMI in Japan mm-hmm, to pull this off. So that you know basically what it was is to have had rehearsals. Uh, and also, we had extensive rehearsals, and uh, we uh, spent three or four days laying down the tracks. And um, it was a lot of lot of work, you know, organizing, put together, and it, it 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 really came out well. It's one of my favorite, one of my favorite uh, projects. Uh, playing with Will and. Uh, and and everyone there, I mean, making that all work, bringing it all together. Yeah, you know, two drums, um, and everybody sort of worked out how they would, you know, uh, work. You know, especially two guitars and two drummers, where you know each of us had a role to support the, each track. So um, you know, there's there's uh, you know, a lot of different things happening in there. Yeah, a lot of no, hard rock, a lot yeah. of the acoustic, you know, acapella voices, round singing. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I'm really happy I was able to, you know, and everybody involved, you know, what they brought to the music. I'm really, really happy and grateful, and especially. Uh, uh, you know, to my wife Lydia and to Grandma Twy, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, it just you know came out you know the way I liked it. I wanted it to be. Mm. Yeah. yeah, no, it's a fascinating record. I think more people, more people should check it out for sure. Yeah, um, you mentioned like kind of the like hard rock element of of that which yeah like you know at times like i i love you know it, you know on on that first track especially like it, it gets very you know intense um and like I, I guess i'm wondering like you know is that is that like the closest you know or, or the most sort of hard rock heavy metal at, you know oriented project that you've done or are there other situations where you've played like you know that real heavy kind of rock yeah well you know the the um 
uh, trio beyond. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So that has that element. Absolutely. Also. Yeah. You know. And now the Hudson Group. Also, sure. Sure. We, we have that approach. So yeah, that's uh, you know, and, and doing the cover songs, you know. Yeah. Those are. Those are instances where I got a chance to, you know, lay down specific groups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the in terms of like the the so so in terms of the Hudson like like all the the repertoire that's on there was that just like all of you getting together and being you know kind of like you know discussing paying tribute to kind of an era and 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 just figuring out your collectively your favorite yeah. pieces. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I I was my idea to put that. You know, we we did some benefit concerts yeah. around here, and then I thought, well, it'd be a great idea to go out and well, make a record recording, and uh, you know, go out and do some dates. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we you know we put our heads together and made a list of things that we things that, tunes that we liked, and between originals and cover songs. Mm-hmm. So that's how that worked. What, what were what were some of your what were some of your favorites in terms of the covers, like in terms of like you know pieces that you thought worked particularly well on that record? Uh, well, I mean, what's on the record is what we Sure, decided. sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so were, there, were there a fair amount of other ones that you, you tried, like different well, other? Well, we tried a few others, but uh, I can't remember. At the moment, I can't remember. We didn't decide, we decided not to do that. Yeah. But uh, let's see, what else didn't get on there? Um, Uh, there are a couple of things that didn't make it on there. Um, if it comes to me later. Sure. Uh, when you were doing those pieces, like, you know, you mentioned like the Levon thing, um, like with each of those pieces, would you, were, were you particularly going back and like paying close attention, you know, revisiting the original, maybe thinking about what that drummer was doing and playing off that? Or was it kind of just like, you know, not that specifically tied to the original recordings. No, I mean we, you know, we had the uh, we acknowledging the music, but you know, putting our, you know, whatever we could add to it. Yeah, yeah. Kind of using it as a, a jumping off point sure. for for yeah. for improvisation. Mm-hmm. Sure, mm-hmm. right. Um, and the and and you know, you also mentioned the 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 trio beyond thing. Um, I mean, did that was that specifically designed as as you know because obviously so much of the Tony and Lifetime repertoire. Like, where did that idea come from to look to you know kind of to look specifically at that at that Tony material? Yeah, I thought of that. You know, and then and then everybody you know agreed that's a great idea because uh-huh. we both were all, were all you know influenced by that group. Yeah. So it made perfect sense. Yeah. Well, it seems like the way you were talking about. Um, Abercrombie being somebody that you were able to explore all this different, you know, move kind of freely between these styles. It seems like Schofield is another one of those players that oh, yeah. you can kind of just go wherever Absolutely. you need to go. Yeah. Schofield's yeah. fantastic. And, you know, he has his quirky way of writing, you know, but he can play inside, outside, and he's got such a great feeling. You know, that blues tinge, whatever he plays on so has a blues tinge. Sure, sure. So he's, he's fantastic. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of interesting, like looking. Very soulful, yeah. Oh yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. Um, but it's just kind of interesting, like looking at at these players, 
you know, these different players that you've had like these long collaborations with, whether it's, you know, Abercrombie or uh, Schofield or even Keith Jarrett or all these people, it seems like something that's in common with all these people is that they're not walled off to any of these styles, like any of these influences can kind of come in. Mm-hmm. Right. And would you, would you say that you kind of gravitate towards players who also share that, that idea? That, oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, Bruce Hornsby is another one. That's Absolutely. Like that. Yeah, you know Bruce's classical and everything, and he goes and pursues it. Yeah, bluegrass, you know. Yeah, jazz, you know. He's he's a, he's open and experimental too. Sure, you know. So I have a lot of respect for Bruce. Yeah, and and so. and, and 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 you know Vernon Reed, you know, and those like you're saying Vernon and Will and all these other people, those are also musicians. Oh, so yeah. Also, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, but I, I I guess I just think it's it's uh it's worth you know it's worth mentioning that point simply because you know, there are musicians who, whether it's jazz or rock or something else, who, who kind of start out in a style uh, and they, and they, and they, you know, the, 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 the barriers are a little more strict in terms of they'll, they'll stay in one Mm -hmm. lane. You know what I'm saying? They'll stay in one in style sort of for their whole career. And it seems like, you know, you've always been kind of pulling from all these different places and just kind of going wherever you felt like you needed to go at that time. Like, do you, do you feel like you just, like, did you specifically decide early on that you weren't going to let yourself be, like, you know, hemmed in by, by any of that? Yeah. I mean, all these other players we talk about, it's yeah. the same thing. Right. You know, so it's it a choice. Sure. Yeah. Those people made a choice to, that that works for them, yes, yeah. and they're they're cool with that. Sure, you know, sure. So you know, for me, I like to have uh, flexibility. Absolutely, and clearly that was, and clearly that was like something that Miles insist and kind of insisted on in, in terms of his ability to just kind of go where he mm-hmm. felt like he needed to go. I mean, but at that time, like you know, I don't know you. I mean, I wasn't around at that time, but you hear a lot about when it. You know, it's kind of analogous to what say when when Dylan was kind of plugging in or kind of moving from acoustic to electric it's kind of like people talk about the miles transition that way too that in terms of that there was perhaps some backlash to it some people who had been fans of him before Mm -hmm. were upset Mm -hmm. about it like being someone who was who was working with him right in that moment you know do you recall you know was that was that in the air do you recall there being some people who were you know judgmental of where miles was going or yeah but i mean that wasn't the issue sure So, so it was think it, about that. You just do what you, you know. He was right. focused on what he was doing. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's what you know. You know, you know, musician who's committed to what he wants to do. Yeah, don't worry about that. Absolutely. You know, you, you believe in what he's doing, and that's it. You know, and being challenged, challenging himself. Yeah, that was it. You know, whoever, whoever didn't like him moving more electric, that's their problem. Sure, sure. And it seems like, too, you were able to, because of this Fillmore thing, you know, you were playing in front of, you know, those audiences weren't going to be, you know, necessarily like jazz purist audiences. They were just kind of checking it out for what it was. He was expanding his audience. Yeah. So that's what his goal was. And it was always constantly doing that till he died. Right. Yeah, and it seems like it was absolutely successful because he sort of... transcended. a choice. Yeah, right. And he was able to transcend, you know, these musical categories obviously which which you know I, I you know you've you've done the same thing i feel like um yeah i mean um can i just throw out a a couple more 
you know, there's so many more collaborators, but can I just throw out a couple more names and you can, we can just sort of go maybe, you know, hit touch on a couple other collaborations and, you know, uh-huh. yeah. Um, I mean, the, I, I find those, uh, t- I'm not sure how to say the name, uh, Terry Ripdahl or Terry J. Ripdahl. Uh, I, like I, I, th- those, those records are, you know, another really cool kind of intersection point of mm-hmm. all this, uh, all this stuff is coming, coming together, especially on that, sort of self-titled one uh with you and Miroslav mm-hmm. like like t- tell me about a little bit about about that band and some of the uh, well it was just a recording group we never really did uh-huh. any dates actually but we had some magic that happened in the studio and you know Manfred was uh intuitive enough to realize that was a nice combination it's a different unusual combination because Terry was experimental he's not a jazz guitars but he had some experimental references that you know Miroslav and I could work around mm-hmm. we could work around so uh, you know it, it came up with a different different kind of approach with bass and drums and guitar yeah it seems like from you know you were, you were mentioning the gateway came out of that too it seems like Manfred really had a knack for like you know creating these bands that would just kind of make make magic on the spot or something it, it, well that was Manfred's that's Manfred's thing he wants to get the, he has the the uh, vision and then the intuition and the heart and soul to be able to know when the music to capture that creativity at its highest mm-hmm. so that's you know, and he brings that into the studio with him, and, it, and the musicians pick up on it, and then there's sort of an exchange creatively, and you know the results are great recordings. You know, yeah, I mean, there's just like like you're just like just like your ECM discography alone is just like it's incredible the amount of just different because you know there was the one-off projects, there was something like um, the New Directions band, which mm-hmm. is another fascinating group that we didn't touch on that you know. I mean, what was that like putting, you know, I, I love the combination of like Abercrombie and, and Lester Bowie. And I, it seems like, you know, maybe those two players wouldn't have come together if it wasn't for, you know, for your background or you're putting them into the, into the well, yeah, it was an unusual combination, yeah. but I knew it would work. Yeah. Just because, you know, the characters, yeah, not so much the instrumentation, but, uh, you know, what we would, would come off of each other. You know, so the first album studio came out great and uh we did some live touring and um, you know uh, again that sort of trust you know the music was kind of not unlike the the uh some sort of kind of bitches brew thing it was sort of freewheeling it was kind of flowed in and out of itself and then spontaneous things happen in the moment you know on the on the on the uh on the gigs, mm. and just to see what happened, you know, I put it together just to see what would happen. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I know everybody was really quick, and it, and also had a sound. You know, absolutely. Sound. So yeah, that was great. So, absolutely. Uh, I'm glad we had a chance to really document that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Tremendous band. Um. Okay. Um. What about, um, can, can I ask you real quick about, about like the Matheny collaborations, like 88, what? Hold on, should we? <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I mean, it's getting kind of close here. Uh, okay, cool. I mean, but 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 yeah, maybe maybe we could just you know tell me a little bit about that that we can stop because I feel like it, that that uh, like the first track on there is again like one of these really interesting like what there's track. Uh, sorry, um, you moved now. Sorry, two two folk songs or the or the beginning of eight eighty one. I uh, oh the yeah. the well, I mean, you know, Pat's like he's always coming up with fresh ideas. Yeah. And uh, so that album was great because it had uh, Brecker and uh, Charlie, yeah, Charlie. Yeah, and he he wrote some great songs on that record, you know. That and again, that was the magic that Manfred had in the studio. They captured the excitement and enthusiastic of that music uh, manifesting itself on a high creative level, and so. Uh, you know, I've always had fun playing with, uh, with Pat, and uh, you know, later we can get to that. You know, the Parallel Reality album, sure, which, sure, sure, which he and I co-produced together, and then Song X too, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you know, Pat has uh, a lot of respect. He's a visionary. He knows. He he thinks ahead. He thinks big, and he knows what will work. Yeah, for him and his projects. Uh, that he's going to do, and uh, you know, and he go, he he changes his style too for certain different different uh, situations. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he's very very you know he gets well thought out, but he also is aware of being putting himself in situations where he can just be free and not necessarily be precise as he can be. Do, yeah, he can do both things. Yeah, 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 and I think and I think too like the way you were saying that. When, going back to when we were talking about playing with Miles and, you know, you're saying bringing in the sort of Buddy Miles thing, maybe some of the, you know, influences from like Elvin or Tony or something. It's it's on that 881 record, you can really hear like on that two folk songs thing, you can really hear like it's really it's a really seamless thing in terms mm-hmm. of the jazz meeting the rock. Mm-hmm. It's like it's not it's not one or the other. It's just kind of like somewhere right in the middle, you know, the best right. of both in a way. Right. You know, and yeah. I feel like that's really been like a signature of yours over the years. Mm-hmm. No, it's good. Yeah, yeah it's true. Yeah. Uh, so I think all right. We better cool. We better cool it. Well, well. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking yeah. the time to, so to you, chat about some stuff. Yeah. We. I guess to be continued. Yeah. 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 No. I'm. 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 I'd love to. Love to talk again. Yeah. For sure. That's it. Thanks so much for listening. Huge thanks to Jack for his time and stay tuned for the next episode of the Heavy Metal Bebop Podcast coming soon.